Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Now, if you're listening as you normally do on Blog Talk Radio or iTunes or however you normally listen to my podcast, there's absolutely no change in what you're hearing, but (laughs) there's actually a big change to Teach Me to Talk because we've decided to go ahead and broadcast our podcast on YouTube. By doing this, we hope that we can enlarge our audience and get this really, really important information out to parents all over the world who may not have access to services like we do here in the United States. As you can see, I am in the back room of uh, my new mission-based clinic here in Central Kentucky. This is where we handle all of our website shipping, and you can see it looks pretty industrial. Uh, We're getting new sets specifically for our podcast and for our other YouTube Uh, projects like Therapy Tip of the Week, which is coming back. Yay! Uh, But all those things are happening out there. But I didn't want to wait anymore. I didn't want to have any more delays between uh, how we deliver the podcast and just didn't want to have any more empty weeks. So that's why we're going to go ahead and come to you now. We also have another really exciting addition because we are going to offer continuing education credit for our podcast too. That takes a little while to get in place. So if you are watching now on YouTube or if you are listening uh, just a regular way to the podcast, that may piece may not be up and running yet, but keep checking back. You can always go ahead and listen or watch the shows and then go back later and get your CEU credit. But I'm really excited about it. It's just $5 to get that credit and we're kind of calling all of these things our $5 CEU uh, project and you only pay if you get credit, if you need to file and get that certificate. Otherwise, this information is absolutely free and so as a therapist I hope that you're referring the parents on your caseload so that they can get this information firsthand and to back you up you need that validation you need that affirmation so if you can have someone else say the things that you say week after week after week to a family if they can hear that again that gives them another opportunity to really synthesize that information so I hope that you'll do that as well all right, so today's show is a continuation of last podcast, and this is number show number 371. Now, last show, I numbered it 370 without really realizing what a gap there was. So if you are a regular podcast listener, <laughs> you may be wondering, what happened to show 362, 363, all the way to 370? That's just a glitch in numbering. That's just kind of a little administrative fluke that happened, so I wanted to let you recognize regular listeners know that those those shows aren't missing they were never done but this is show number 371 and this is a continuation last week we started talking about red flags for delayed communication skills in infants and toddlers and you can download this information from teach me to talk this um great handout. You'll see mine has scribbled notes, but your copy will be pretty. And if you are a therapist, this is a fantastic way to share this information with parents. And if you're a parent, it's a great way for you to go ahead and download the information and be able to really think about it and really look and look for these examples in your own child and be able to even talk to your spouse about it or talk to grandparents who often have so many questions about a grandchild's language development. So I think it'll be a really, really nice tool. And we plan on having these every podcast from now on. And it's part of the continuing continuing education 
credit that you'll get, the, the test questions or the written part of that will be taken directly from this handout. So be sure to access that information, especially if you are listening uh, through your device rather than watching on YouTube. Okay, so this show, as I said, is part two. So last week we talked about the red flags for delayed communication skills in infants and toddlers. And you know, going back and listening to that show a little bit as we were editing and thinking about it, I don't think I said this, but let me say it. If your child is exhibiting some of those red flags, it's a pretty big deal. And I do not want to minimize the absence of these really core communicative skills. So it's not something that as a parent you should be blowing off if you're thinking, well, he's 12 months old and he didn't really have any of those first skills that she said he should have by 12 months. Let's just give him a little more time. I just would caution you not to do that because so many times parents tell me the biggest regret they have in dealing with a child with a communication delay or disorder is that they waited. They knew in their gut that something was really, really wrong, but because they just didn't want to really deal with it, or maybe they got advice from a, even a pediatrician who said, let's wait and see. That's that's not the most prudent advice that I give parents. And so, especially if your child is missing some of those skills that we talked about last week, and we'll review the list again, but if he's missing some of those, please, 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 the number one recommendation that I would say to you, if you were right here in my office out there, and if we were meeting, and if I were working with you and your child is, this is a big deal. And I do think you should pursue professional services for this because these are really core skills that set the foundation for every communicative interaction your child will ever have. And frankly, so many of these language skills really form the foundation for future academic success. So we certainly don't want to let these delays continue without beginning to address them. So that's what today's show is all about. If you were listening last week and are a parent and said, you know, my child is just not as strong in these areas as I would like for him or her to be, or you weren't sure about some of these things, and you want some clarification for what you can do as a parent at home, that's what today's show's about. And so I'm really, really excited that you're back for part two of this. Now, if you are a therapist, so a speech-language pathologist like me, or an occupational therapist, or an early interventionist, I always call early intervention professionals teacher people. That's kind of my fond expression for that because so many times your professional degree, your professional education, or your professional degree is in education. So that's hence the name for my teacher people. Um, but if you are listening and you are one of those professionals, this is the kind of information that you should be sharing with parents in this first visit or two. So we're talking about just initial strategies, big global things that parents can implement at home. Now, don't let the term global scare you and don't feel like this is going to be overwhelming. The ideas that we will be talking about today are really, really uh, pretty easy to implement for parents. If you are connected with your child, if you are uh, the kind of parent who 
would put enough effort in to watch or listen to a podcast, (laughs) these are going to be things that are well within your ability to do. And certainly if you're a therapist, these are the kinds of basic recommendations that you want to make in those first few visits to really help a parent get started in helping their own child and in their own family's journey in dealing with a delay for an infant or a toddler in regard to their communication skill development. So let's go back and look at this and just start with the very first couple of red flags that we talked about in last week's show for delayed communication skills in infants and toddlers. The first one was difficulty making and maintaining eye contact with an adult by six months. And then the second red flag was no big, warm, uh, joyful expressions or big smiles during interaction with another person. Now we want to see both of those things which are closely related, how a child looks at you and how a child responds to you with his or her little face. We wanna see that really firmly established by six months. And when we don't see that, we know that there is a developmental problem. Sometimes it is related to a medical diagnosis. So you may already be well aware of that. You may have had a child who's diagnosed with Down syndrome or cerebral palsy or some other kind of brain or neurological diagnosis that your pediatrician has already already identified would put your child at risk. And usually those are the kinds of kids that we see that have most difficulty with with this or the big developmental diagnosis here is autism. And let me just say, sometimes children that I've worked with in my 25-year career, parents will say, you know, he really was doing that pretty early on. He was really smiling at me and they'll sh- and had good eye contact with me and was pretty joyful with me. And then they'll show me videos. And just over time, that really, really declined. They didn't see those kinds of things as often. And let me tell you something else that happens with children who go on to be diagnosed with autism is they really are joyful with their parents. You really do see big smiles and big reactions and just you really do see some of that reciprocity with a parent or with another familiar adult. But when you uh, see that child with another person that he doesn't know as well or with someone that he's just not as connected with, that's when that social skill interaction piece is missing. So that's why when we really first assess infants and toddlers or toddlers and preschoolers for autism, we really don't always look at their social interaction skills with their parents because so many times those are the, the almost every time, <laughs> those are the best connections that a child has. So if you're listening to this and if you're thinking, well, you know, my child really does look at me and he really does interact with me and he really does respond to me and I can get, he laughs with me and we have that great connection back and forth, but that's it. He doesn't do that with anybody else. That's still a red flag and that's what we would really, really look for. But this particular, these particular red flags really do refer to that earliest developmental period. So what can we do? What if you're working with, an, uh, say, a 12-month-old or, or you were like um, the situation that I just mentioned where your child is pretty connected with you, um, but sometimes his connection with you is, is good and then sometimes it's not as good, or you're trying to get him to really broaden his circle of people that he interacts with. Let me give you some really basic things that you can do at home to work on these kinds of skills. And let me tell you that this information is from my book, Let's Talk About Talking, my therapy manual. And it's, uh, let me just kind of give a caveat.
got here. It's not always for sale. It is a big book, 337 pages. So we aren't always able to produce that as easily as we do our other therapy manuals. So we produce that in limited quantities and then offer that. So anytime that you see that's for sale, if you're a therapist or you're a parent who knows that you're going to be working with your child with this language issue for a while, keep on the lookout for that book because when it's available, you need to get it right away so that it, you don't miss it again. But the strategies that we're going to be talking about and the skills that we're talking about here today, these red flags or the skills that are related to these red flags, I've pulled directly from a chart that's in the back of that therapy manual. And it's 11 Skills Toddlers Master Before Words Emerge. And that book has fantastic charts because not only will you be able to get an initial checklist that'll let you look at these 11 pre-linguistic skills, but you can also, you've got some directions here for how this skill looks in real life. And so with this first, these first two red flags that we talked about, difficulty making and maintaining eye contact, and then that lack of those just tuned in facial expressions with you, what are some things you can do? What are some things that make uh, learning how to interact with you easier for a baby or a toddler or even a preschooler during this developmental period. My number one recommendation here is do not let a child check out for long periods of time. That means don't let him stay in a playroom or in a bedroom or just roaming throughout your home by himself where he's not forced or doesn't have an opportunity to interact with you. Sometimes I hear parents say, you know, we moved or we had another baby or my husband works at home so we didn't put my child in daycare but my husband is really working all day and he's, uh, he just, my, my child just kind of does his own thing and we were happy about that at the beginning but now we realize, gosh, that's not the best uh, situation for him to be in all day because he naturally wants to isolate himself anyway. So if you have a child who has difficulty responding to other people, they have to, again, have frequent opportunities to interact with other people. You've got to give them a reason to need to communicate with you. And again, this happens long before words emerge. A child does not wait until he gets his first words to learn how to interact with you. He's doing that by looking at you, by listening to you, by trading turns. And we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. But even just during basic play routines or even during our everyday routines that we do with children, like giving them a bath and like uh, feeding them meals and changing their diapers and just all the caregiving activities that we do. Children need those frequent opportunities to interact with you. So you can't really let them check out and do their own thing. Now, part of that too is that you can't be checked out either. <laughs> so like I mentioned before, the, the situation that a parent is trying to just get so many things done at home and doesn't really take the time to do lots of checking in with their child, change that today turn the TV off, break your own screen addiction so that you are not on social media all day on your phone or on your iPad all day. Really, really make a concerted effort to spend time with your child. Now, I talk about playing on the floor all the time, and Dr. Stanley Greenspan coined the term floor time as his basic overall treatment philosophy for working with children with autism and other developmental delays and disorders who were having a difficult time connecting with another person. 
And he really talked about the importance of spending that time eye to eye, face to face. And with children and really young children, infants and toddlers, where would that be? That would be on the floor with them. So you've got to make time for that. And you've got to make sure that that's a regular part of your day. Now, the research tells us that children with uh, with identified social skill delays and disorders really need 20 to 25 hours a week of intervention before we're going to notice any measurable change. And so sometimes when I say that to parents, they freak out a little bit because that's a lot of time. And they say, I can't do that. I work or I have other children or whatever. Let me just say if that's you, please make the time. Look at what you can do in your schedule to really, really get that level of interaction going. And let me tell you why that's important and why that research uh, really confirmed what we know. Kids have to spend time with other people and interacting with other people to get good at it and to really learn it. And typically developing children have that natural drive to try to communicate with you. You can barely go to the bathroom or cook a meal or take a phone call without them clamoring for your attention. But our little guys who would have difficulty with these milestones like making and maintaining eye contact or that smiling back at you and being super happy and super excited when you're talking to them and really wanting to stay with you and connect with you. There's something different about how they're internally wired and they do not have that natural inclination to seek you out, to stay with you and to really want that and crave that social interaction. So we have to help them get a lot more comfortable with that. And again, exposure and the opportunity to do it is your first step with that. So don't let them be isolated anymore. If you are doing laundry, you have them with you doing laundry. You have them picking up the clothes and or, or whatever you can think of their little job would be. Have them right beside you in your home, no matter what you're doing. If you are shopping in the grocery store, talk to them the entire time. If you're driving, it is so tempting to use a screen in the back seat to keep them calm and happy. And I'm not talking about a drive across the country where you're going to see grandma and it's, you know, you're in the car for 10 hours. I'm talking about just those little trips that we all take where it's so easy. You just want to put in a DVD and kind of check out yourself. Don't do that. Really use that opportunity to engage your child. You can always talk to them about what's going on around them. Singing songs is a great way to help pull a child's attention into you when he or she seems to be more disconnected and kind of doing their own thing. So think about the, the changes that you can make in your daily routines to help a child have more of an opportunity to stay with you and connect with you. And again, nothing substitutes for that from a mom or dad with a child who's having difficulty learning how to communicate. So get down on their level, talk to them directly about what they see going on and what you see going on. Pay attention to what they're paying attention to so that you can use your words to explain things to them and help them really learn how to tune into you and, and, and enjoy you. Now, another strategy here that we want to do is uh, social games. So that means 
playing and all the little things like patty cake and like peekaboo those little games are so great because that's where your child is developmentally if he's not talking yet and even as a toddler but isn't really interacting with you we've got to kind of back up to that point in his development and get him to really really enjoy those kinds of early back and forth interactions with you even something like give me five but you can't just say give me five one time and then let him walk off <laughs> you've got to keep that interaction going for as long as you can and that really leads us into this third red flag and if you'll refer back to our list from last week it was no back and forth sharing of sounds smiles or other facial expressions by nine months so here what we're talking about really is that turn-taking piece meaning you do something I do something you do something I do something and it really is the core foundation for a conversation so children will never ever ever be able to ask or answer or questions or respond to you or make a comment or stick with you in conversation until they've learned to do it non-verbally first. So the turn-taking piece is a really big deal. And again, it's one of the 11 pre-linguistic skills that we talked about before. So what can we do? Well, again, we've already talked about we want to give a child more opportunities to be with us and stay with us. And so now what we want to do is make sure that we're doing things together. And so I always like to tell parents, you've got to play, 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 play. And when you are sick of that, you have got to play some more. <laughs> That's how important it is to establish that back and forth piece. You are both doing the same thing. You are both attending to the same thing. And that is the foundation for another pre-linguistic skill that therapists refer to or doctors, psychologists, whatever professional, child development professional that you're thinking about calls joint attention. And that really does mean that you are sharing experiences and that you're both doing the same thing. Now, a lot of kids who have these red flags will really prefer to um, the word that I used before was isolate themselves, but really that's not what they're doing. They're just blocking out other kind of external stimuli from coming in. So they are just super focused on what they are doing. So we have to really get in there and give them a reason to include us. So we have to act like sometimes that they are uh, wanting us to participate even when they are not. <laughs> so again, Dr. Greenspan's information, if you're a therapist, reading information on floor time will really, really get you started in this uh, direction. But so that if a child drops something, you're going to pick it up and kind of keep it so that he has a reason to include you here. Or even an earlier kind of turn-taking routine would be uh, something like we talked about, give me five, or just something simple like if he's drinking from a sippy cup you try to get a drink from that sippy cup too and see if you can get kind of, and you know a fake drink of course but if you can get that kind of nice back and forth going where you're pretending to drink you know that sort of thing that hooks the child's attention in then you offer him the cup and then let him drink or do whatever he wants to and then you take it back and do that sort of thing other little games like uh grabbing his nose or tickling his belly those kinds of little turn-taking things or even for you just trade objects where he has a toy and you hold out your hand and help him if this were his toy give that to you and then you just give it right back to him and you are playing just these really simple early kinds of things that you see typically developing babies do now sometimes parents think well my child is two and a half why why we're supposed to be going forward we're supposed to be making progress here 
why are you backing up so much? Because we have to back up to where your child can be successful. We have to meet a child where he is. So if he is missing this skill, that back and forth sharing of sounds and smiles and other facial expressions, he's not able to do it non-verbally. And he has to do it non-verbally before we can get to any of those other things that we talked about. On last week's show, we talked about things like sound effects. So things like blowing raspberries, your however you blow those, or clicking your tongue, or fake coughing and fake sneezing. Those are great ways to get that back and forth turn-taking piece established too. So when you hear your child cough, cough back to him. And you can't really always do it from across the room and get his attention. You may have to just get right in his little face. So getting in a child's line of vision is really, really important for all of these milestones, but especially these first few where we're really focused on that eye contact and that social interaction. So that's something you can do too. Anytime your child is playing with a toy, try to get in there and take a quick turn. Now, sometimes kids get really mad about this. That's okay. Just keep being persistent and keep being as loving and as fun and as playful as you can. You don't want to do these kinds of things with a mean-spirited attitude. Now, that's a problem sometimes for therapists because we get so focused on you will do this without really making sure that we are just as fun and as exciting and that we are enjoying ourselves too. So don't get so caught up in that. And if you're a parent, that may be something you lapse into too, being a little bit more authoritative than you should during these kinds of interactions. Remember, we want to give a child a reason to include you. So if you are saying things like, look at me or give me a turn, they're not going to be as receptive, just like we're not as receptive to that kind of demanding uh, person who's trying to interact with us. So try to do everything you can to keep it light and keep it fun. And if you feel like a child's getting frustrated, back off a little bit, but keep yourself in there. Keep, you know, if he's rolling a car, you try to grab the car and roll it too. Or if he gets too upset with that, get your own car and crash it into his or try to roll it. You're just playing together, you know, making your car sounds, you know, or beep, beep, or, you know, run, run anything like that to get yourself in there and get a turn as you're playing. That's super, super important. And that's a great way to get those early kinds of sounds going. Uh, I mentioned social games before. And so this, again, is a really fun way to make sure that you're interacting with a child. And always, always, always think about how your face looks. So make yourself just look as exciting and as fun. You know, use your crazy eyes, as I like to call them sometimes. <laughs> you know, really widen eyes. Big, big smiles yourself. Just do everything you can to make yourself interesting to look at because that really will increase eye contact with the child too. All right, so let's move on to number four. The fourth red flag that we talked about last week was no babbling by 12 months. So remember babbling is where children are just producing strings of sounds so that we're hearing them and that's a really important part of uh, learning how to vocalize on purpose, so vocalizing with intent. So what are some things that we can do to get that going with children? Well, our natural inclination when a child is not talking is just to bombard them with more words. And usually it's words like mama and dada and bye-bye and words we want them to say, and that's fantastic. And you still want to keep doing that. You want to keep trying. You want to give a child a model. 
uh, to use word, hear words and then repeat words that he can use. However, <laughs> lots of toddlers with language delays just are not there yet developmentally. They are not ready to imitate and repeat your words. So you've got to back that up to that previous developmental level, which is lots of play sounds, lots of sound effects. You can babble if you want to, just the ma 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 or do 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 do. However you want to think about doing that in the context of play. But again, I really like to use those environmental noises like we just talked about. So things that are funny sounding words. We already talked about raspberries. We talked about the fake coughing and the fake sneezing, but you can even bump that up a little more with uh, yawning, things like uh, gasping, like <gasps> when something exciting is happening, things, little sound effect things like we talked about with the cars and trucks. You can do animal sounds. You can just even do little sounds like if I were here with the child and let's say that my pen had gotten stuck under the keyboard here, I would just you know, lot, you know, just a grunt or lots of exertion. So any little sound that you can help your child learn how to make on his own purposefully to represent something, represent a message there. If a child's going, ah, ah, you know that means that he's, he's trying to get something that's been stuck or he's exerting some effort here or pulling something or uh, if he's, you know, really, really uh, tired or just just any, any, any kind of little emotion that you can think of that you think, gosh, I've got a sound effect for that. Use it. And here, remember the milestone here is no babbling, but so many of our little friends with delayed uh, speech and language skills have to start again at a level that's, that's really, really uh, just, it co-occurs with that. But sometimes parents don't think about that. And a lot of times therapists don't even think about it. So think about those sound effect kinds of things. What can I do that, that it's just a little bit easier than a word, but we can give it some meaning here. We can uh, help a child learn how to make it. And usually those sounds are a little bit easier than the consonant and vowel sounds that we produce for uh, that we produce for words. And actually, I shouldn't have even really said that because they're really the same. They're really the same kinds of sounds. So what we're doing is building that foundation for words. So when we're doing a little, you know, uh, you know, any kind of little sound that we might be making as we're playing with a child, those those noises are made up of the same kinds of sounds that we use for speech or for talking. So get some of those things going get some of those sound effects going. Let me give you a good resource for that. There's a an article at my website, teachmetotalk.com, called Help My Child Won't Imitate Words. And so I give you a whole list of little play sounds that you can do with your child. So I'll try to link that with this post uh, so that you can get more specific ideas there. But let's move on with that. But the main thing here for that, to help a child learn how to babble, is you get noisy. You make as much noise as you can. And again, don't focus on words. Take it back a level and do more sound effect kinds of things. All right, the fifth 
uh, red flag here that we were looking for is when children don't use any gestures. So no back and forth gestures such as pointing, showing, reaching, or waving. And we want children doing that by 12 months. So we have an 18-month-old who's not waving bye-bye or two-and-a-half-year-old who's not pointing or waving bye-bye or using any kind of nonverbal communication. That is a really big deal because research tells us that we can look at a child's gestures at 18 months and know more about his language skills at 36 months than any other area that we would look at. So how can we get gestures going? And if you are referring to my chart from Let's Talk About Talking that I referenced earlier, the first thing you have to do is use lots of gestures as you talk. Well, you've been listening to this podcast for what about 20 30 minutes now you can see or watching it if you're watching it on youtube (laughs) you can see that i cannot keep myself from using gestures as i talk and i bet that you can't either it's just a natural way that you communicate so for parents for children who are not using gestures one of the first recommendations that we make is for you to really double down on your own gestures which means that if you are uh, in the you're going to get uh, let's say some juice from the refrigerator and you're saying to your child you're thirsty you want to drink let's go get some juice come on look look it's over here it's in the kitchen let's go and so you're gesturing come on and look and pointing and really using those kinds of gestures yourself when you are leaving a room, when you are leaving your home, you make a big deal about waving bye-bye. Now, as a therapist, you're going to naturally know that we'll use a lot of hand-over-hand assistance to get this going, but sometimes parents don't don't get that. They don't they don't know that they should be doing that. So, so use that as a therapist. Do lots of modeling, and even if you're working in a state early intervention program where they are telling you do not work directly with the child, work directly with the child (laughs) because moms and dads need to see you you are modeling to a mom and dad how to help a child learn these skills so show a mom or dad how to do some hand-over-hand assistance and don't just do it one time keep it going keep these things going especially as you're working on something like gestures you know you can't really manipulate a child's mouth to help them talk goodness knows we try right you can do some prompting and things like that but it's hard But think about gestures. You really can help a child do gestures. You really can take their little hand and do uh, some hand-over-hand assistance to get those gestures going. So be sure that you are doing that with a child and that you are showing a parent how to do that so that they get super, super comfortable with that. Other things that you can do here to get gestures going are to teach a child how to imitate whole body movements like jumping and dancing. Now you may be saying, Laura, why in the world would that work? How is waving connected to helping a child le- learn how to jump or dance or kick or something but that's more of a gross, gross motor movement? It's because we always start with big and then go little. We always start with something that's grand and then refine it. So with a child who's not pointing, who's not, who's not waving, who's not we'll talk about showing in a minute, but who's not doing some of those really naturally uh, emerging gestures, you sometimes have to back it up and start at a more basic level. So dancing is a big one. So when you hear music and when a child hears music or is listening, model dancing there. Or or really when you're wanting to play with a child and get him, uh, get him revved up a little bit so that he can uh, pay attention to you later. You know, the theory there is we rev their little systems up so that we can calm them down. They kind of 
get that burst of energy out and then they can sit and participate for a little bit. One of the things you can work on as you're doing that and helping a child's sensory system regulate is a lot of gross motor movement like jumping, like kicking, like running, and you want the child here to imitate what you're doing. So to do what you do, and, and again, togetherness is a big part of this, So and uh, interacting is a big part of this. So doing this together. So he learns, hey, I'm going to jump when she jumps, or I'm going to run across the room and chase her as she runs. Those kinds of things are super, super important because we're teaching a child, again, to, to use these big body things. We're also teaching them to imitate, which really leads into a skill in our next section. So let's save the rest of that discussion for there. Let's go ahead and talk about now the other uh, skill that we wanted to see here by 12 months is responding to their names. And if, we, if you went back and have listened to last week's show, you know that Children who go on to be diagnosed with autism often have in their histories that they have been inconsistently uh, responding to their names for a long, long time. And we talked about how that is just really atypical when we compare it to children with not only typically developing language skills, but even kids with just more normal language delays, just a language delay versus autism, which is a language disorder. And so we really want to think about, first of all, if we have a child who's over 12 months and not responding to their names, you know, we already said this at the beginning, but I really, really, really want to encourage you as a parent to pursue some professional assistance with this. And I meant to say this at the beginning, but let me just say it now since I forgot then. You've really got to talk to your pediatrician about getting an assessment. And if your pediatrician ignores you, you just keep talking about it and you keep saying it. Now, luckily, all of the ad campaigns that have been done and all of the education uh, that groups and even the Centers for Center for Disease Control and just our government agencies here in the United States have done for autism awareness have dramatically increased the number of physicians who are really, really responding to parents and who are initiating those conversations with parents about autism and the early markers for autism. And so remember we talked about on last week's show that not responding to your own name is a big deal. And so you want to really pursue a professional evaluation. If your pediatrician, if your child is under three and your pediatrician has not referred you to your state's early intervention program, you can make that referral yourself as a parent. Just Google your state's name plus the phrase early intervention and get that contact information so that you can get in touch with someone. Now in a lot of states they do a screening over the phone and they'll ask you some questions to determine if you get an evaluation but in many many states just your call alone will generate that referral and a a therapist or a team of therapists will come to your home so super simple and evaluate your child and let you know for sure whether there is a problem or potentially a problem now if you um, don't like that idea you can always pursue an independent practitioner so you can call a speech language pathologist my uh, just by looking at your local resources there I want to always caution you to get somebody who works with children your own age so you can't really get someone who focuses on adults and expect them to be great with your toddler <laughs> so look for a pediatric speech language pathologist who really specializes in infants and toddlers and preschoolers and make an appointment with them and and get some information so that they can lay eyes on your child 
You know, I, I love what I do and I've done it for a long time and I'm good at it, but that will never substitute for someone laying eyes on your child and talking with you about what you see right there in living color. So let me just once again encourage you to pursue that assessment. Another avenue for getting help for you and your child is your local public school system. Some states actually do their early intervention programs with uh, school-based therapists and school-based professionals and I don't know which state you live in so you're gonna have to do a little homework on your own and get that information but uh, if your child we've already talked about one two three four five six seven seven things if your child is missing even a couple of these things I would really really encourage you to pursue uh, pursue that assessment you you won't be sorry therapy is so fun and it's so educational and as a mom or dad who's really committed to your child and really really cares about what's going on with your child's development you're going to want to take that extra step and if you are married to someone who is reluctant to do that I get that. I understand parents are scared and they just want to wait and they just don't want to deal with it and all those things. But as I said before, the biggest regret that parents often share with me is that they waited. They knew for three months or six months or a year that something was amiss developmentally and they did not follow their own instincts. So if that is you right now, I just would encourage you to go ahead and take that next step and get your child uh, evaluated by Someone. All right, so here we are up to our sixth, one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh red flag, which is, oh, let's back up. Let's, we didn't really talk about some strategies for helping your child consistently res, learn to respond to their names. Now, let me talk about this because when a child isn't responding to his name, there's a social problem meaning he's not always connecting to other people. It could be that there's also a receptive language problem, which means that he has not linked his name means him. Like, my name is Laura. So I have known for a long time that when somebody says Laura, I'm going to look and figure out where they're calling me from and pay attention to that. And so sometimes it's that it really is a language comprehension problem. They haven't learned that what their name is and so they don't consistently respond so you're going to have to just do some really focused teaching you'll have to use probably a lot of direct reinforcement with that so that when you call their names let's say your little girl's name is Annabelle and so you'll call her Annabelle Annabelle and then when she responds you have got to act like she won the Nobel Prize. You have just got to pick her up and praise her and just lavish love and do everything you can to make her want to respond to you like that every single time you call her name. Now, some children, it really, really works with that physical affection. Some kids, you have to bump it up even a little further and give them some kind of more tangible reward like a drink or a a snack that they really really like so you'll just have to figure out with your child what reward will he work for and really really use that and I've helped parents learn how to do that at home just in a visit or two where we work on that where you're, the child is across the room and let's say his name is Danny and we just call him we let him get engaged in something and call him and as soon as he responds mom is right there just loving on him and picking him up swinging him around tossing him in the air whatever and then we let him get back to his work or his play whatever he's doing and then we do it again so this is a really really important skill and it's really is the most effective way I have ever 
ever found to teach a child to respond to his name. So that's a, that's a big one. And if you're a parent and you're looking at where do I start with these things, that would be something you can do right now as soon as the video is over to go start to do that. And if you're a therapist and you've not used that kind of method before, it's a winner. And so that's certainly something that you can implement today with uh, kids on your caseload. All right, the next red flag is no words by 16 months. And we've already talked about how we get vocalizations and babbling going. Words are an extension of that. But guys, before kids can imitate words or before kids say words, they have to imitate words. Now, imitation means what? It means copying or repeating. So we want kids able to do that. So if we're looking at this as a continuum, before a kid says words, he has to imitate words. And then guys, before a kid can imitate words, do you know what he has to do? He has to be able to imitate sounds. So we're back at that play sound level where we talked about, you know, a kid might imitate an animal sound that you've modeled for them or imitate a vehicle sound or imitate an environmental noise that they hear like uh, the telephone ringing, you know, ring, ring, you know, whatever, how your cell phone sounds, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and listen, there are some kids who can't do that. So what do you do for kids who aren't using those environmental noises? You've got to back it down another level where they're imitating actions with objects and they're imitating, like we talked about before, the gestures that you're using. So they're imitating those body movements. So that's where we start with kids who aren't really saying words yet. And again, this is hard for a lot of parents to really wrap their heads around because you think, how can teaching him how to play with a toy, how to imitate what I do with the toy, like stacking the blocks and then knocking them over, how does that fit in with talking? It does because you're teaching that foundational skill of imitating. So that's that's the first thing that you're going to suggest if you are a therapist and working with a family with a uh, with a late talker here or a child with a more serious developmental delay. So all taking that back, that's your initial strategy here for helping a child learn how to say words. You help him learn how to imitate actions gestures and easier sounds before you get him to that word level imitation. And let me just say that I've got so much information about this at Teach Me To Talk. If you're a parent and want to read about that, go to my website at Teach Me To Talk and just in the right uh, search bar, just enter imitation and all kinds of things can come up. And I get so fired up when I talk about imitation. Actually, I've written a whole book about it. It's called Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers. And I've done a whole six hour course about teaching imitation skills for therapists and even for parents if you want to take a look at that because imitation really is the foundation skill that we're looking for for all of these areas that we've talked about but it certainly certainly impacts how a child learns how to imitate words all right our next red flag that we were looking at is the child who is not following simple and familiar directions by 18 months. And so remember we talked about before that kids have to understand words before they can say words. And so when we have a child who by 18 months isn't following just really basic commands like shut the door, come here, go get your shoes, bring me the ball, where's your book, go find Dada. Where's your hair? Show me your teeth. All of these little basic 12 to 18 month skills that typically developing babies learn in the course of a day, our little guys with language delays often aren't doing those things. And so parents are really, really focused on he can't say any words, but sometimes it's a more 
a, a more rudimentary problem than that. They don't understand words. And, and how you know is that they're not following directions. And lots of parents think, well, my child is, just won't listen. Or my child just won't do what I say. He has a mind of his own. And that's usually not really what's going on. Now, behavior is always a factor with children. It's frankly always a factor with adults too. But at the same time, when children aren't talking, we always have to make sure they're understanding words too. So if you have a child who's not following directions, who's over 18 months, that's where you start. You start with that receptive language piece and you have him, you really, really work with him long enough so that he's hearing those words and he's following those directions. So things like identifying body parts, things like finding familiar objects. So if he loves his pillow, one thing you do is you say, where's your pillow? Go find your pillow. And you help him do that. You use a lot of physical assistance to help him go get it and when he's mastered when he's learned how to do that you don't just stop you ask him where's your pillow multiple times in a day so that he can continue to to uh, master that skill you you then you add something else you say okay well he's he's got that one down now I'm going to teach him how, you know where's your cup find your cup and then you work on that and you, you teach him that you know you you've Put the cup in different places and you help him walk over and get it and then when he gets the cup you let him take a drink and you praise 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 and then you do it again and for some kids that's what it really takes just that super super focus it's not just talking more so that they hear more although talking is super important but it's really helping with that follow-through so that they learn how to follow those simple and familiar directions so even little things with even little songs that have directions in them you know if you're happy and you know it clap your hands if you're happy, you know it, stomp your feet. If you're happy and you know it, shout, yay. Those little things where you're learning how to follow those directions, super, super important thing that you can do today for a child who's exhibiting some of these red flags. All right, our next, um, our next red flag that we're looking for here are no two-word meaningful phrases without imitating or repeating. And so this is a skill that we want to see by 24 months. So remember on last show, we talked a lot about kids. Uh, typically developing kids are using phrases by 18 months. And, but on our developmental charts, we give that extra six months. And so we say that we want to have a child doing, uh, saying phrases, using phrases on his own by 24 months or by that second birthday. So what are some things that we can do to get phrases going? Well, first of all, you've got to have single words. You can't just start with phrases. So children usually begin to produce phrases on their own or combine words together on their own when they have at least a 35 to 50 word vocabulary. And truth be told, guys, I lean toward that 50 word benchmark before I start really introducing a lot of phrases. So the first thing that you can do is vocabulary development. So making sure that you've taught a child to say lots of words and you need more than one kind of word. You've got to have more than nouns. If you're a parent, you may be thinking, noun, I haven't heard that word since high school. Well, remember what nouns are. Nouns are labels for things. And so uh, you've got to teach kids names for lots of different things, but they also need some other kinds of words too. So like action words or verbs. So words like go and eat and sleep and wash and jump and push and pull and open. 
Those kinds, run, those kinds of action words. Kids need words like that. Kids also need location words or those prepositions. In, out, on, off, up, down. And so you've got to give kids enough of a base to be able to form some little sentences because if all their words are labels for things, or if they, let's say they only have words that are kind of academic words, and they sound smart to parents, like numbers and colors and shapes, but you can't really make a phrase out of blue-red, can you? <laughs> no, you need other, other kinds of words too. So look at a child's basic vocabulary. And if he's not doing phrases, it typically means he's not saying enough single words. Now, once a child is starting to get a lot of single words, a strategy that you can do even today for parents at home is called expansion, to move a child toward phrases. And so let's say that he has... 25 words, 30 words, and you're thinking ahead. It's like the smart parent you are, and you're a therapist, and you're helping that parent think ahead. So you teach them how to do expansion. And what is expansion? It's taking what a child has already said and then expanding it. And when we're thinking about phrases, you know, that, that's really common advice. Is so that if a child says dog, a parent would say, oh, look, yes, I see the dog across the street. That's too hard. A child is not going to be able to say that if he's not using phrases. So you put one other word with it. So if there's a dog across the street and he's looking at the dog, you you put a word with it that's relative to that. So you would say, see dog. And then you might expand it more to include the other grammatical markers. And there's a lot of good research behind that as well with, you know, after we say something like see dog, then you say, I see that dog and put those little words in there too. But you've got to model the phrase at the language developmental level that the child actually has a shot of doing. So let's say the dog is running. What would you say? You could say go dog or bye bye dog. And it really, really, expansion works so well to get phrases going when you're pulling existing words that a child can already say. So if he already says bye-bye and he already says dog and you see that dog running away from you, I would go for bye-bye dog. You know, use that as kind of your your catchphrase there that you want the child to imitate. And you model it a lot. A child will have to hear two-word phrases a lot before he begins to do some two-word phrases on his own. So that's a really great initial strategy to get that going, those two-word meaningful phrases. And again, the other part of that was, was by 24 months and says at least 50 words. And we talked about those strategies for vocabulary development. Don't just leave it there at nouns. So work on all kinds of parts of speech there. Help your child learn all kinds of things. Now, I mentioned numbers and letters and shapes and colors. So many children are fascinated with those kinds of words because they are maybe really visual. And this happens a lot with kids who go on to be diagnosed with autism. They're super, super visual, so they like colors, they like shapes, they like letters and numbers. And again, it sounds super, super smart, but as a parent, it's not really that functional. So if you're working with a language-delayed uh, toddler of your own, don't worry about those words yet. If they like them and if they are naturally picking up those kinds of words, of course you're not going to say, stop learning your colors. You don't need to know. You know, you're not going to do that. <laughs> and as a therapist... You're not going to want to really discourage a parent when they're excited about learning those things. But you do want to say, listen, let's focus on words that are a little bit more functional here. So let's teach everyday words like, 
you know, shoe and ball and book and names for people in your house or names of familiar people that they see every day. And those social words that all kids need like bye-bye and no, those kinds of things. You know, look at what, what's usable. Look at what your child really, 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 really needs to say in the course of a day. So that vocabulary development is really, really an important part. And certainly we, we want to help parents learn how to work on that. And like I said before, you can get tons of information like that and teach me to talk. You can also access other sites. Uh, Hannon.org has some fantastic information about vocabulary development, so you can certainly take a look at that as well. All right, the, the next red flag that we uh, talked about, red flags for delayed communication skills in infants and toddlers, happens by 30 months, and it's conversational turn-taking. Now, I've already mentioned this a lot on the show where we've said that kids aren't going to take turns in conversation until they're taking turns in play until they're taking turns in other kinds of little social routines with you and certainly kids who aren't very verbal yet aren't going to be able to take turns in conversation and so you can't really expect a kid to answer a question if he doesn't have very many words or ask a question if he's not already using some phrases yet so certainly that vocabulary development again is a really really big part of this and before kids can say words remember it's that receptive language piece and so many times the reason that kids aren't asking and answering questions by two and a half is they don't understand enough language yet so you've really really got to get that receptive language piece going with them following directions and understanding what you're saying so that they're really sticking with you in conversation and are right there doing doing uh, whatever it is that you're doing with them and they're participating fully with you another thing that we haven't really talked talked about is initiating. How do kids learn how to get your attention? How do they learn how to get their message across to you, across to you when you are otherwise occupied? So lots of uh, initial strategies for teaching initiation is helping a child setting up situations where he has to be the one to tell you what he wants. So doing things like placing his toys out of reach or putting them in bags or containers where he has to give them to you or bring them to you. And we didn't talk about showing before. I meant to mention this when we were way back up and talking about gestures and joint attention, but just having a child show you something is a really basic skill that in, that toddlers should really, really master. They should be bringing you things all day long to show you, to get you to pay attention to. So a broken toy, an empty cup. When they want their shoes on, they should be bringing you their shoes. If there's something that they can't get that they want you to reach for them, they should be somehow getting your attention so again with those gestures so that they can initiate that communicative interaction with you and that's a really really important strategy so many of our little guys that have language delays and disorders are pretty passive and one of the reasons they don't use their words on their own or spontaneously is that we don't set up situations and really teach them how to request and teach them how to initiate so my favorite strategy for this is just picking the thing that they like the most and putting it where they can't really get it and so they're going to have to use a word or a sign or a gesture to get me to understand that they want that so if it's like a sippy cup we put it up on the counter where they can see it and then if they're crying or something you respond you say what is it but you play dumb you say what do you want I, I don't know you're gonna have to show me and you might even you know do things like say things that are wrong you know is it the 
pen? Is it the paper? Is it my shoe? You know, even something ridiculous sometimes will really, sometimes it makes a kid mad when you first start to do it. But, but when you help them, when you start to sh- teach them how to point, when you're modeling, oh, it's your cup. You want your cup. And you really model. And then you do some hand-over-hand assistance to get them to show you the cup or walk over to the cup and really, really look at it. And again, you have to be so deliberate and so intentional when you teach these things. And does it feel natural? Absolutely not. But if they were going to learn it naturally, it would have already happened. So as a therapist, don't get hung up on that. Don't think, well, I'm I'm teaching too many therapy strategies or I'm teaching a parent something that they don't naturally do at home. That's why you're there. <laughs> don't feel like you can't introduce something new. That is absolutely what you want to do with a family. So be sure, look at that. All right, now let's talk about just kind of the wrap-up here. And remember our last red flag was... Uh, before we do the wrap up, any loss of speech or babbling or social skills like eye contact at any age. And we talked about this last week, how regression is never, ever, ever a good thing. So that if a child has learned how to do something and then he stops, we're worried about it. And let me just say that with language, we sometimes don't pay attention enough to this or it's dismissive. But let me tell you something. If a child learned how to walk and then stopped walking, it would be a big deal. A pediatrician would not dismiss that. They would think there's something physical wrong here. I've got to look at this. Why is he not doing it? They wouldn't say he's just stubborn. He won't walk if he's already walking and then stop. And so don't buy that with language either. You've got to really, really um, pay attention to that when you have a loss of something. And I would say even a plateau. If you have a 28-month-old or a 30-month-old that he's, he's just using the same 10 words that he's used since he was 18 months old and there's no real progress, that's that's a big deal too. You want to get some professional help with that and, and you want to use the strategies that we talked about today so that you can get some of these things going at home. And so I've already mentioned my website a lot, teachmetotalk.com, where you can go and get tons of information about early speech language development in all of these areas. We talked about social skills. We talked about receptive language and cognitive skills. We talked about gestures. You can, uh, and we talked about helping a child learn how to use little sound effects and vocalize intentionally, all those things that come before words. So I hope that these strategies have really made sense to you. I have some DVDs that, uh, as parents, be super, super helpful with you to see me working with children and then see other parents as they're working during the sessions and, and learn how to do some of these things at home or all these things at home. Certainly, I want to encourage you again, if you are a parent with a child who's exhibiting some of these red flags, talk to your pediatrician and get yourself some help. You are not meant to do this alone. There are tons of people who want to help you. And again, tons of resources here uh, at teachmetotalk.com and certainly all throughout uh, the internet. I've, I've talked about some resources there and I'll go ahead and list some additional resources there in your written information uh, in the post. So if you're watching on YouTube, scroll down to the bottom of the post so that you can get that information. Last show, I did not say anything about subscribing. If you want to 
Make sure that you are always notified of the next podcast or the next Therapy Tip of the Week or the next $5 CEU opportunity. Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel here so that you can get it. I also want to encourage you to subscribe to my email list at teachmetotalk.com. You get tons of emails uh, that really will review these strategies. If you're more of a reader than a listener, lots of written uh, information for you that you get almost every day in your inbox. So right there, lots and lots of good ideas. And I know as a therapist, you're going to want to sign up for that too, so that you are always aware of better strategies or different strategies or things, you know, that you know, that you forgot that you knew. You'll get that uh, through the daily email. So I hope that you'll do that. All right. So this was show number 371, what to do if your child has red flags. These were our initial strategies. So I hope that they're going to uh, help you as much as I know that they will. And I just wish you wild success as you work with your own child or a whole caseload of kids uh, who are late talkers or who have other kinds of uh, communication challenges. So that's all for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and thank you for joining me for TeachMeToTalk.com's podcast.